Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Bdratty. They have a great promotion going on right now on their amazing apparel. Now, through the end of July 4th weekend, so this coming weekend, receive a free mystery polo when you spend $100 or more at bdratty.com. So all you have to do to do, get this free polo, I mean, who doesn't like free polos? And who knows? It might be a new style that y- you might not know that could be your best style. So you get this free mystery polo. I think I'm going to do it. I like surprises. Uh, use the promo code DRADDYVAULT, all caps. It's D-R-A-D-D-Y-V-A-U-L-T, all caps, DRADDYVAULT, uh, at checkout and spend over 100 bucks, and you get a free polo. So go to www.bdraddy.com to get this promotion now through the end of July 4th weekend. Today's episode, I am joined by the National Links Trust founders, Will Smith and Michael McCartan, and uh, we are discussing their huge news. They earned the bid to manage the three Washington, D.C. municipal courses from the National Park Service last week. They are now in the negotiation phase of this uh, process, but they will be managing these three golf courses. Uh, It is an incredible opportunity for municipal golf across the country as well as in D.C., obviously, with these three courses. They are East Potomac Golf Course, which is an original Walter Travis design, Rock Creek, which is a William Flynn design, and Langston Golf Course, which has historically been the hub of African-American golf in D.C. The projects would be undertaken by Tom Doak, Gil Hance, and Bo Welling, the senior design associate for Tiger Woods Design. The podcast leads off with Michael McCartan talking. He was a guest on episode 112 of the podcast. If you miss it, uh, we talked in detail about East Potomac on that podcast and his thesis on the subject matter. Uh, If you want more information on the three DC courses, obviously that podcast with Michael was a big one, but we also have a few articles uh, written on the website at www.thefriedag.com. So you can check those out there. And now, without further ado, here is Michael McCartan and Will Smith. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. What was the oh shit moment? We uh, this this is a uh, this is a lot of work to get this done. I mean, you guys are are novices, newbies at this, and uh, this was kind of your first uh, first crack at uh, public uh, entering the public domain and RFP process. <laughs> I guess the question is: did, Are you referring to the oh shit moment that <laughs> happened while we were putting the RFP together, or when, after we won it? Because we had both. either or maybe both of them. <laughs> I think there's a moment in in this where you know on the front end when you have a great idea, you know, Will and I and a lot of people had come together to say we really believe in this and we want to be a part of it going forward, and that 
that's you know the easy part <laughs> and then when we looked at the rfp and everything that was going to be involved and all the elements we had to bring together in a short time frame that was definitely an oh shit moment and and it definitely proved out to be as much work or more than we could have envisioned at that time i mean it was it was an intense period of time um after winning the or you know winning the right to negotiate the lease recently though shit moment was a little bit different it was a little more tied into emotion of how much effort we have put into it and how crazy it is that we you know one we won and we're gonna you know hopefully have the opportunity to do this um but this oh shit moment's on a much different scale i mean it's it's many years long and and uh, there really is a lot of work, and this is not just putting it on paper; it's actually making it happen. <laughs> uh, talk to. Was there a feeling that you were going to get it, or did this? Did the you know them calling you and award like you know? I assume they called you or emailed you and awarded you the bid. Was that just kind of a surprise? I. I think we were confident in the the team that we put together and the vision behind what we're trying to accomplish. But we've never been a part of a government process like this, and you never know what the priorities are or the influence influences are in the background. And I I was surprised. I, we had no idea what to expect. And and when you don't have that kind of experience, I think you tend to believe that other factors beyond what you can control are the things that will drive the process. So to see that the park service, you know, also values the things that we put into our proposal was really gratifying. I don't know. How did you feel, Will? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, as someone who grew up in DC and um, have seen, has seen a lot through politics and that, and that sort of thing over the last 45 years, um, you just never know how these things are going to play out. And as Mike said, we were confident in our vision. We were confident in the team we'd put together. Um, we knew that there was at least one other competitor that was going to be responding. And, um, you know, we knew they were, they had worked hard on this and that, um, they had put a lot of effort and time into it and, um, that they were a bunch of big hitters in the DC, uh, scene, um, it was probably helpful that we really didn't dive into who was on the on on their board until uh, I think it was the last day that I decided <laughs> to pull up their website and read through it, and at, at that that was definitely an oh shit moment because it's it's quite an impressive list, and uh, you know uh, you know so we just didn't know how much sort of backroom politicking was going to come come into play um, rather than sort of the merits of of the proposal because we felt we felt confident on that we, we really did what from your guys's proposal what angle did you feel uh resonated most with with the national park service I, I i don't know what you think will but what i was most impressed with in the process was how aligned the park service was with the things that we valued and wanted to accomplish with this project. And, and they're not unique to us, but um, you know, the park service really wanted to respect the histories of the properties and to go back to um, whether it's the original golf architecture or preserve the golf culture that's developed at each of the courses. The park service was extremely explicit about 
saying that's what they prioritized. And on top of that, they did a ridiculously good job of documenting the histories of the courses and what eras of um, their history that they would like to see the courses go back to. So it's really kind of like a historic preservation project in a lot of ways. And um, and that's what the Park Service is really good at. And it, it happened to be the exact thing that when Will and I first got together to talk about this um, was the part of the um, potential project that we wanted to emphasize and get the word out about. So there's just really great alignment there um, between what the Park Service was asking for and what we were putting into our proposal. So I'm assuming that that aspect of our proposal was was one of the things that probably most stood out to them. So you guys both have, uh, you know, experience and part of your career was in golf course architecture and uh, from the restoration at a standpoint of, of a, if you were going to a club and restoring it, people look at, hey, this is the era that we want to bring it back to, or a lot of times it's identifying when the best self of the course was what what are the different eras that you and the nps uh sat uh you know kind of landed on at each course at at langston at uh rock creek and at east potomac well rock creek there was a there was a nine hole original uh routing that flynn did and then soon thereafter um he came in and expanded it to 18 and kind of chopped up most of the fr the first nine. There was only one hole that was, uh, that, that carried through in both, in both routings, um, which was the 11th in the current, current, uh, order of play. Um, and, you know, we knew very early on at Rock Creek that we wanted to do some, some, some different stuff that, uh, from a business standpoint, um, and for an engagement with youth, um, that we needed to add a driving range and potentially a, a par three course. And so um, very early on, we, we realized that we were more going for in the style of Flynn than necessarily a strict restoration. And um, Gil uh, you know, thought that was, that was a, a great idea and uh, came in and took a look and uh, reworked um, a lot of the corridors basically that, that Flynn used um, to create a, a nine hole sort of regulation length golf course uh, and then we use some of the quarters and green sites um, from the uh, the 18 hole Flynn for for the nine hole par three, and and then we're able to slot a driving range in close to the current current clubhouse. So um, it wasn't necessarily like we're going to go back to this year at Rock Creek. Uh, it was more of okay, let's let's use Flynn as an inspiration and use the corridors and green sites as much as possible. Yeah, like how many how many of the original Flynn holes can we get into a nine hole routing? Mm -hmm. We got I think we have about seven corridors and green sites um, used in the nine hole routing that we're, we're using as a working plan right now. So, yeah. And for people that don't know about Rock Creek, it's obviously a, it's a huge park system within DC. It's one of the most beautiful places in DC, but one of the things with the existing golf course having been out there is that it, you know, the site might be a little small for a modern 18 hole golf course. So the feasibility of having 18 holes there that are good golf holes is, is very low. So coming up with a non-traditional, um, or, you know, new idea that would seem to be the place that fit the most as, uh, one that adapted kind of to modern absolutely. times. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, it's a hundred acres and, and very forested and there are some steep slopes 
so it would have been really tough to get a sort of uh, modern 18 hole golf course back in there, even, you know, until, you know, the, the, the back nine has been closed the last few years because uh, it's basically been overgrown and too hard to maintain. Um, but even when the full 18 was, was open, I think it was, you know, uh, a par 64, 5,000 yards. I mean, it, it, it has, it, it was never a, a quote unquote championship. I hate using that term, but it was never a championship uh, golf course. Um, even when it opened back in the 20s. Yeah. And then there is a road that was constructed through the property, which chopped off two holes. So it got even smaller. Um, I imagine that's got to be an exciting one just for how much um, other recreation is going on around the golf course in, in the Rock Creek Park. Yeah. One of the things that we've been really focusing on, um, again, prompted by the park service, but also something that I think we both believe in, is how to bring non-golfers into the site in a way that makes sense. And Rock Creek's a really cool example of what's possible there because, and again, all this stuff is, we should put the caveat in front of everything we're talking about that it all has to be approved by the park service. Um, but I think there's a great opportunity there to connect into the trail system that exists around the course and bring people into the clubhouse, give them an opportunity to stop for a beer or lunch and just kind of get a sense of the scale of the place, um, which is out in an old open farm field and in the middle of a city, but you can't see anything associated with the city there. So it's got a really great feel. And, and right now it's generally only used by golfers when there's so many people using the surrounding park and it'd be great to mix those uses um, more than they are currently. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable how many people, both golfers and non-golfers alike, just don't know it's there. Because uh, while while Rock Creek is hev- a heavily used uh, portion of the city, um, it just it just doesn't it doesn't um, you know, people it's tucked away. So it, it's it's you don't drive by it and see it and say, oh, there's that. I want to go check it out. And that's going to be part of our challenge is to is to get people there. And I and I think it's such a beautiful spot, and uh, I think we can really open people's eyes to what an amenity it is going to be for the for the whole city. It, it kind of the potential reminds me a little bit of Audubon Park down in New Orleans, which I think is one of the coolest places because you've got this giant, beautiful park and you're walking along the path. Like I went for a walk with my wife, who's not a golfer in Audubon Park. And then all of a sudden you see golf holes and it's just neat to see people and golf intertwined. And I think it, it you know, in Chicago, we have it with Maravitz and we have the running trail that's right along it, along the lake. And and that is a, a neat aspect, even for runners. It's it's probably a nice break in scenery. I know I used to run by it, and uh, but I was a golfer, so I always <laughs> had my you know rubbernecking onto the golf course. But um, the so let's talk a little bit about each of the other properties. Um, what is with Langston? I know it's the it's probably the most functional golf course right now as it stands. What do you plan on, you know, from the aspect of improvements and then also what you're trying to highlight at Langston and bring to the forefront? Yeah, so Langston, I think the um, our focus is on from a so there's two aspects to the Langston project. One is golf course focus. The other is community focus. So if we're just talking golf course. Um, you're right. The land at Langston kind of lends itself best as it currently, um, you know, sits to, uh, not a lot of changes to the course. I mean, what we're focusing on is infrastructure. There's a ton of deferred maintenance out there. 
as well as just generally connecting the course to the river setting. It's the entire back, well, a, a big chunk of the back nine um, is on an island in the Anacostia River. Um, and you wouldn't know it. You can't see out the sides of the property to the river, which is 20 yards away from where you are. Um, so we've partnered with the Anacostia Watershed Society um, to do some work along the edges of the river to open up views. And it just so happens that all of the vegetation that's in the way of those views is, you know, or at least the vast majority is invasive plant material. And so there's a really good alignment from an ecological perspective to get rid of that vegetation and replant with something that's more native to the area, um, which both functions better for the environment and provides a visual connection to the river. Um, so there's so there's that aspect of, of just kind of emphasizing the setting. Then, you know, obviously there's a whole bunch of um, deferred maintenance to the golf course itself, where we'll be doing work on greens and tees and bunkers. Um, there's not as much work at Langston in terms of um, messing with the routing. The routing is pretty good. Um, so it's really about improving the details of the course and, and the infrastructure. And then um, the, uh, the major component um, outside of the golf course for Langston is helping to invest in the, the clubhouse and, and other facilities to, to make the, um, you know, the, the site an even better host to the community than it you know, currently is. In its past, Langston has functioned as a community center um, when it's been at its best. And we wanna kind of emphasize those elements of um, you know, its relationship to the neighborhood and the city um, by providing you know, excellent um, facilities for, for, those, uh, for those types of uh, functions. And maybe in a, in a post-COVID world, uh, not, not as simple, but you know, one of the things we might look at very, from the very start would be to add sort of outdoor seating um, because so much of the community gathering point right now is inside. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're sort of assessing, assessing everything. And, um, but our, our idea is to really uh, focus on engaging the community and, and um, polishing up the golf course rather than wholesale changes to the golf course. Yeah. And more than a lot of golf courses, I, um, and certainly it's, it's unique in my experience with golf is that Langston has a, as a you know, large number of people who go to the course every day and don't play golf, just hanging out around the clubhouse and being with their friends and people that they see on a regular basis. And that community is what we want to you know, foster. And you know, it's something like we just talked about, it doesn't really exist at Rock Creek. People don't come from around the area to Rock Creek. We'd like to make that happen. But that actually is already happening at Langston. We just want to, you know, kind of uh, preserve and improve that. Speaking of, of that and the community and the social aspect of, of golf and, and kind of we've touched on it briefly twice, do you, do you guys feel that golf could be a part of a larger effort for social reform in D.C.? Certainly, I think connecting... Um, there's a there's a real opportunity to do things that benefit um you know provide uh, i know it's kind of the buzzword now but i think it's it's true just um you know kind of looking at equity in the city and providing opportunities 
um, you know, to people who need them. I think the golf courses can be um, real catalysts for, um, you know, providing some of that. For example, at, um, you know, we, we've been talking about caddy programs and things that, um, you know, might be uh, appropriate. And we've had some discussions with um, the Western Golf Association, Evan Scholars, to um, put in a, a caddy program at the three courses. And that leads directly to college scholarships, as well as, you know, a, a, an income for um, kids in middle school and high school. And definitely think that that is, you know, just one aspect of, of something that we can do to both expose people to golf, but also to, you know, provide um, opportunities that wouldn't have existed otherwise. Yeah, I think, you know, I think one of the things you asked, you asked earlier what we thought that of our plan resonated with the National Park Service, and I think our commitment to affordability and accessibility um, what was one of those things. And I think by um, keeping these places uh, affordable and accessible, um, they will continue to be uh, diverse places and melting pots um, where people come together uh, over a common bond of, of golf or maybe just a common bond of being outside and enjoying uh, a beautiful, beautiful space. So uh, it's a challenge and we're excited by it. And it's going to be um, something we're going to be working on for, for decades. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the affordability and accessibility uh, plans, obviously investing a you know, large amount of capital into improving these, these properties, you know, it, keeping it affordable. Is it going to be something that is centered around local uh, affordability with, you know, a little bit more premium of a out of town rate or. Well, when it comes down to it, the courses are national parks, so they really are for everyone. Um, even if they're going to be most heavily used by locals. So I don't, I don't see a tiered pricing system in, in the future for these courses that that's not the way, you know, um, just if you take places that do that um, and do it successfully, and it's, sort of, you know, it's all really great, um, you know, where it's done. But if you take Torrey Pines, for example, and there are people coming from, um, long distance is a way to play the course at $300 a pop. You, you have to cater to the person who's paying $300, even if it is relatively affordable for, for locals. And, um, I wouldn't really characterize Torrey Pines as kind of the place where people learn golf. You know, it's not that kind of place, but the traditional role of the three DC courses has been, you know, as, as a gateway to golf for, for so many people. I mean, I can't tell you how many stories we've heard of people reaching out to say congratulations about this. You know, I learned to play golf at the Langston driving range and or the East Potomac range and then graduated to the red, white and blue courses there and just kind of worked their way into golf. It's, it's such a common story. And I think that that is at risk a little bit if you're, um, if you're, focusing on providing a high-end product to some small portion of the users who come out to, to play the courses who just, just fundamentally changes it. So our, our goal is to do kind of a, a straightforward pricing system that's the same for everyone for a lot of reasons, not just because it's a national park. Yeah, you know, I, I love the answer there. And I think it's where so many communities and, and cities where you go wrong is where they get these big far-fetched ideas of of pga tour events and championship golf in the city and they 
they don't realize that in the process they're taking a course that used to be very accessible, affordable, and welcoming to beginners and turning it into something that's not any of those. And I think that's the the magic of especially um, municipal golf and, and community golf within a you know, densely populated area is the impact it can have on getting people into the game, getting people outside, being an escape from the, from the, you know, bustling city life, as well as the world, you know, there's nothing quite when you've had a stressful day, like going out and playing golf, it it has this unbelievable soothing effect. So um, I think that's a, you know, wonderful thing. The one course we haven't touched on yet is, uh, is East Potomac and, you know, probably, I don't know if this numbers wise, the most popular of the three courses at the, at the current time, but a Walter original Walter Travis design. And I know Mike, uh, this is a near and dear to your heart. Uh, you wrote at your college thesis on this and we did a podcast, uh, about a, almost a year and a half or two years ago now on uh, on the whole uh, the golf course, but is the plan to return? Obviously, with Tom Doak uh, being tapped for that, uh, plan to return it fully reversible, or will it be eighteen holes played one way? Yeah, no. The plan is to return it to being reversible, and I mean, it makes so much sense from a you know, a, a municipal course point of view in terms of spreading out wear and tear. I mean, you're right that the East Potomac courses are the are the most well used of the three um, DC facilities. And, you know, if we do our job right, it, you know, the courses would hopefully get a lot of play. And so um, the reversibility, I think, actually plays well with that in that, you know, if you're playing in one direction one day and the other direction in the other uh, on the next day people walk in different places spread out you know wear and tear um in a way that wouldn't be the case if if it was always played in the same direction so there's a little bit of um you know a confluence of of good things with respect to the reversibility and put and putting that back to um putting that back in place with the restoration i, I mean yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I, I remember. Um, so one of the cool things I think we've touched on is that the the NPS did did their research, and I remember reading uh, when the RFP came out, dove in, and they had all this supporting material on cultural landscape inventory and cultural landscape reports, and um, it had their recommendations of what they thought should happen at these places, which was a great roadmap for us, and we were very happy that it ended up aligning very closely to what we envisioned. Um, but I remember reading their recommendation that the uh, reversibility of the of the blue course at, at East Potomac Park um, should be the reversibility should be explored explore putting it back in and I, I remember reading it and, and calling up Mike and reading it to him and be like I can't believe that they've gone that far and that was it was huge for us because um, that was something that we cared about and we thought was really cool and unique and uh, we're excited to to try to make it happen yeah and I know um, you know Tom and and his team at Renaissance Golf they have to be the like the world's foremost experts on Walter Travis in terms of golf architects. I mean, uh, Tom, you know, has worked on a number of Travis courses, including Hollywood and um, Round Hill and Garden City, you know, all over. But then also, you know, Tom building the loop also has to be one of the, 
the foremost experts on reversibility too. So it's it's just a they couldn't be a better group to be working with, and they couldn't, as far as I can tell, based on our conversations with them, they couldn't be more excited about the opportunity to to be a part of it too. So um, we have like a full set of Travis plans for for the greens and and bunkering around the course, and um, it's definitely set up well for restoration. For anybody, for any listener that might not understand, you know, I think until somebody really looks at a reversible golf course and maybe even experiences one like the loop, how does, can you just distill in a very, you know, maybe a minute manner how a reversible course works? I think the easiest thing to to talk about are the greens. For the most part, the greens are approached from two directions. So what might be the back of the green on one day is actually the front of the green on the next day because you're playing to it from the opposite direction. Um, you know, at, at a place like East Potomac or in St. Andrews, the, um, the routings are pretty out and back. So you really do get that counterclockwise or clockwise, you know, direction of the routing, um, you know, as you play out from the clubhouse and then back to it. Um, if you want to just talk like one hole, for example, if you're playing from uh, on a normal day, you finish the first hole, the second tee is right next to it and you play to the third green and then you play the fourth hole after that. Um, coming around at East Potomac the next day, you'd be playing the seventh hole um, you know, and then the eighth through the corridor that you just played, uh, you know, of the second to the back of, to the back of the first screen and then back to the clubhouse um, after that. It, it's surprisingly hard to actually describe in words. Um, you know, it's, if you show one picture of it, it gets the point across pretty yes. fast. But, <laughs> but when you try and like talk numbers and, and uh, you know, how it would function in a kind of theory sense, it, it starts it starts getting more difficult. But. Yeah, and if somebody was just looking at it through the non-reversible lens, playing one way one day, you might see a bunker 20 yards off a tee box and be like, "What? what's this bunker? What's the point of this bunker? But that bunker is for the other hole playing in um, the opposite way, the gr- coming off maybe the green that you just played. So it, it's neat. And then obviously, you know, I, I remember Tom saying on a podcast I did with him about the loop um, that – you know, from a maintenance perspective, the reversible concept at the loop only added about 15% to their maintenance bill. And, you know, from the wear and tear that comes on a golf course, the reversibility helps it so much because all the divots and all the tee boxes are used half, half as much. And, and, you know, where people are hitting their common, the common spot for tee shots is, is separated by so much by different ways they're playing holes that it's, you know, you get the, the golf course gets about half the wear in the, in the big spots for, and it's got two golf courses. So it's yeah. great for regulars because they get a lot of variety day to day. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really cool concept and it really is the type of design choice that maximizes the site at East Potomac. Cause it's a man-made peninsula. It's, it's extremely flat with a lot of Ripley contours in the ground, but at the same time, you know, the best way to maximize that site. And I I know this has got to be what Travis was thinking at the time was to 
build as much variety into the course by virtue of kind of turning it around and playing um, the other direction. I mean, you can't do that on a really hilly site. It's got to be something that facility, you know, allows for, um, you know, visibility in both directions. And um, yeah, I'm sure he was thinking of St. Andrews and its reversibility when, when he was designing. Mm-hmm. So it, in you know, I think we'll have probably a lot more discussions and as this process goes along, talk to us a little bit about where you are today. Obviously you're now into negotiations, but what that means and a realistic, you know, what you think the next steps in a realistic timeline uh, for maybe one or, you know, any of the projects to start. Well, uh, we're, we're, uh, if we can agree on a lease, we're, we're taking over October 1st. Um, and we, we're confident that that in some form or fashion, we'll be, we'll be operating the courses on October 1st. Um, people have told us that, um, uh, permitting and plan approval can take some time with the National Park Service. And while our hope is to get going um, this fall on some work at Rock Creek and maybe uh, some work at Langston with the Anacostia Watershed Society, um, you know, that, that, that remains to be seen. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, the timeline between our, our notification and when we're supposed to take over is, is pretty short. Um, so everything's a little bit up in the air in terms of timing, but, you know, our, our hope is to, to hit the ground running, uh, October 1st. And that's what we communicated to the park service. So I think everyone's on the same page about what we'd like to have happen. It's just a matter of going through the necessary steps to make it. So, (laughs) yeah. Um, yeah, it's a tight window. I imagine it made, it was made tighter by the, the, uh, uh, yeah. coronavirus too, with everything kind of up in the air for a while. Um, beyond, you know, a successful business from just your pure operations and, and great golf courses we've, you know, that we've discussed and improving them. Are there larger goals, uh, and, you know, kind of pie in the sky things that you hope that these projects achieve and the overall DC golf achieves? I think that, We've looked at this as an opportunity to show that architecture really matters for, you know, for um, the success of, of public golf and that, you know, really great architecture um, can be available at a reasonable cost. So that's just one goal. But the, the, and the, the, and bigger, the architecture matters in terms of engagement. That yeah, engagement of golfers. For, yeah, absolutely. More people will come to the game, more people will stay into the game if you give them a product that is that is compelling. And the, the other goal, which is not so pie in the sky, but has kind of been driven home over the last week as you know, we've been hearing from people um, who are hearing about the National Links Trust and, and this process, is just we want to be really good stewards to these golf courses. They're they're so meaningful to so many people. They're justifiably on the National Register of Historic Places. Um, and we want to make sure that what we do, um, you know, is is the best thing that we can do for the properties and and make sure that they thrive going into the future. I mean, we've got we've got ideas that we think are going to make that happen. Um, 
and but but really just the amount of emotion and um you know uh meaningfulness that people uh have attached to these courses makes it something that i know will and i look at and and, and want to make sure we you know um take care of and and foster into the future and that's not a pie in the sky thing it's just like so important to be doing you know what we can to to make sure that we do a good job and and that you know the the best things happen out there that's uh that's great i mean it's what every community probably would like to hear about you know people that are coming to take over their golf courses and run them you know simple thing how can how can anybody help whether you live in la or you know if you're in dc how can people help uh with you guys and is there any opportunities for people to get involved with what you guys are doing? Well, uh, as any project like this, um, you know, money is always, always necessary. And so um, I don't want to sit, sit there and say that's the only way to be involved, but an easy way to be involved would be to go to nationallinkstrust.com, check us out um, and potentially donate. We've got a couple of, uh, of merchandise items up there. Um, if someone wants to su- show, show their support as they go out and play golf, um, or just donate, but you know, there, there are, it's incredible how many people have reached out and saying, how do I, how do I get involved? And, um, you know, please, please reach out, send us an email. Um, and we're, we're trying to sort, sort through all that. And, you know, at some point where there will be some, some job opportunities, both with the National Links Trust and with, with our, our management partner, uh, Troon, who, who has just been incredible from the very get go, uh, helping us through this process. So, um, it, I really do think it's a, a, an incredible opportunity to be, part of something that'll be great for the game of golf the city of dc and hopefully um you know municipal golf all across the country great so thank you guys for the time and uh congratulations again and and thanks from the greater golf community we can't wait to see what what you guys do uh, in dc and i think it could have a, a massive impact on the on the game of golf and you know municipal golf in the future Thank well, you, thanks, Andy, for all your support. Uh, it's been uh, it's been fun talking to you over the last eighteen months about this project. Yeah, yes. I I mean, I, when you told me it was happening, I, I had to just kind of pinch. I was like, "Holy cow! I can't <laughs> believe that actually happened." <laughs> so, yeah. so I think of my response. My response probably, if you look back to the to the time me and Michael did the first pod, and I was like, "Is I kind of was like, God, that kind of was fast," you know? It's true. It is true. It's it's been it's been a whirlwind in a in a really good way. Yeah. So, hopefully we're looking, hopefully we're you know five years down the road and we're looking back and saying, man, I can't believe how much we've accomplished you know in in that time span too. 